Sigourney. The present century has been marked by a prodigious increase in wealth-producing power. The utilization of steam and electricity, the introduction of improved processes and labor-saving machinery, the greater subdivision and grander scale of production, the wonderful facilitation of exchanges, have multiplied enormously the effectiveness of labor. At the beginning of this marvelous era, it was natural to expect, and it was expected, that labor-saving inventions would lighten the toil and improve the condition of the laborer, that the enormous increase in the power of producing wealth would make real poverty a thing of the past. Could a man of the last century, a Franklin or a Priestley, have seen, in a vision of the future, the steamship taking the place of the sailing vessel, the railroad train of the wagon, the reaping machine of the scythe, the threshing machine of the flail? Could he have heard the throb of the engines that in obedience to human will and for the satisfaction of human desire exert a power greater than that of all the men and all the beasts of burden of the earth combined? Could he have seen the forest tree transformed into finished lumber, into doors, sashes, blinds, boxes or barrels, with hardly the touch of a human hand, the great workshops where boots and shoes are turned out by the case with less labor than the old-fashioned cobbler could have put on a soul, the factories where, under the eye of a girl, cotton becomes cloth faster than hundreds of stalwart weavers could have turned it out with their hand looms. Could he have seen steam hammers shaping mammoth shafts and mighty anchors, and delicate machinery making tiny watches? The diamond drill cutting through the heart of the rocks, and coal oil sparing the whale? Could he have realized the enormous saving of labor resulting from improved facilities of exchange and communication? Sheep killed in Australia eaten fresh in England, and the order given by the London banker in the afternoon executed in San Francisco in the morning of the same day, could he have conceived of the hundred thousand improvements which these only suggest, what would he have inferred as to the social condition of mankind? It would not have seemed like an inference. Further than the vision went, it would have seemed as though he saw, and his heart would have leapt and his nerves would have thrilled, as one who from a height beholds just ahead of the thirst-stricken caravan the living gleam of rustling woods and the glint of laughing waters. Plainly, in the sight of the imagination, he would have beheld these new forces elevating society from its very foundations, lifting the very poorest above the possibility of want, exempting the very lowest from anxiety for the material needs of life. He would have seen these slaves of the lamp of knowledge taking on themselves the traditional curse, these muscles of iron and sinews of steel making the poorest laborer's life a holiday, in which every high quality and noble impulse could have scope to grow. And out of these bounteous material conditions he would have seen arising, as necessary sequences, moral conditions realizing the golden age of which mankind have always dreamed. Youth no longer stunted and starved, age no longer harried by avarice, the child at play with the tiger, the man with the muckrake drinking in the glory of the stars. Foul things fled, fierce things tame, discord turned to harmony. For how could there be greed where all had enough? How could the vice, the crime, the ignorance, the brutality that spring from poverty and the fear of poverty exist where poverty had vanished? Who should crouch where all were free men? Who oppress where all were peers? 
more or less vague or clear, these have been the hopes, these the dreams born of the improvements which give this wonderful century its preeminence. They have sunk so deeply into the popular mind as radically to change the currents of thought, to recast creeds and displace the most fundamental conceptions. The haunting visions of higher possibilities have not merely gathered splendor and vividness, but their direction has changed. Instead of seeing behind the faint tinges of an expiring sunset, all the glory of the daybreak has decked the skies before. It is true that disappointment has followed disappointment, and that discovery upon discovery, and invention after invention, have neither lessened the toil of those who most need respite, nor brought plenty to the poor. But there have been so many things to which it seemed this failure could be laid, that up to our time the new faith has hardly weakened. We have better appreciated the difficulties to be overcome, but not the less trusted that the tendency of the times was to overcome them. Now, however, we are coming into collision with facts which there can be no mistaking. From all parts of the civilized world come complaints of industrial depression, of labor condemned to involuntary idleness, of capital massed and wasting, of pecuniary distress among businessmen, of wanted suffering and anxiety among the working classes. All the dull, deadening pain, all the keen, maddening anguish that to great masses of men are involved in the words hard times afflict the world today. This state of things, common to communities differing so widely in situation, in political institutions, in fiscal and financial systems, in density of population and in social organization, can hardly be accounted for by local causes. There is distress where large standing armies are maintained, but there is also distress where the standing armies are nominal. There is distress where protective tariffs stupidly and wastefully hamper trade, but there is also distress where trade is nearly free. There is distress where autocratic government yet prevails, but there is also distress where political power is wholly in the hands of the people. In countries where paper is money, and in countries where gold and silver are the only currency. Evidently, beneath all such things as these, we must infer a common cause. That there is a common cause, and that it is either what we call material progress or something closely connected with material progress, becomes more than an inference when it is noted that the phenomena we class together and speak of as industrial depression are but intensifications of phenomena which always accompany material progress, and which show themselves more clearly and strongly as material progress goes on. Where the conditions to which material progress everywhere tends are most fully realized, that is to say, where population is densest, wealth greatest, and the machinery of production and exchange most highly developed, we find the deepest poverty, the sharpest struggle for existence, and the most of enforced idleness. It is to the newer countries, that is, to the countries where material progress is yet in its earlier stages, that laborers emigrate in search of higher wages, and capital flows in search of higher interest. It is in the older countries, that is to say, the countries where material progress has reached later stages, that widespread destitution is found in the midst of the greatest abundance. Go into one of the new communities where Anglo-Saxon vigor is just beginning the race of progress, where the machinery of production and exchange is yet rude and inefficient, where the increment of wealth is not yet greater.